0: chapter 18, the first eight verses. Here's what the Word of God has to say. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, the Son of Man comes. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So what tempts you to give up? I mean, think about it honestly for just a minute. In, in the last little bit, maybe weeks, maybe hours, maybe days or, or years, but what has tempted you? What events, what things have happened in your life that have really and truly tempted you to give up? I believe all of us at some point have had uh, in our lives have had those moments where we were tempted. Maybe some of you even did, but we're tempted to to give up or to quit. Now, sometimes it happens in the context of sports. We've all been there, where it seems like you just can't get a break. Everything you try just doesn't go your way. Or other times your opponents are just so far ahead of you, you, you feel like there's no chance at all of you ever being competitive with them. Or even worse, sometimes you feel like there's a competitive disadvantage given to you by the officials, and you are tempted to give up and just quit trying. Sometimes it happens in the context of our work. Maybe presently you are really struggling to keep up with the demands of your employment. Or maybe the stress of your job is overwhelming you. Or it may well be that you feel like you're being treated unfairly or inappropriately by those who are supervisors over you, and you are tempted to give up. Sometimes the temptation to give up is even more heart-wrenching than just regular old normal difficulties. When you feel like you're being treated unfairly, the temptation to give up is more intense. When you feel like you are being uh, treated w- wickedly or, um, or there's some, there's some nefarious uh, activity going on that's acting against you, it, it creates in you even more a desire to give up. This temptation is present in our walk with the Lord as well. Many are tempted to give up and give in to the world's demands because of the hardships and sufferings that come with following Jesus. We'll talk at the end today that um, one of the things that Jesus was referencing in in this parable, and I think we are presently seeing today, is because of the present cultural context and the hardship of our day, that there are many who are giving up and giving in to uh, the world. So in the context of this parable, Jesus is teaching us how we are to pray and not lose heart. I mean, Luke tells us that in the very first verse where he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray, that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So that is the the purpose, the reason, the teaching of this parable. And so with that in mind, I, I want us to think uh, these these three things in the context of the parable first we begin with a a recognition of the context in which we uh, we live and that is that we live in a context of the reality of evil and I want us for just a moment to understand what that means for us as we live out the gospel and what that means for the world in which we we live and then secondly how do we be I want us to be encouraged from that and there are two things that I think push back against that reality of living in the context of our evil world and that is is that God knows exactly what you're going through and that he will, he will enable you to endure and to persevere and if no other reason, because we know for sure that Jesus is coming back. Yeah. So let's begin with understanding the context in which we live. And it's the same context in which Jesus was teaching this parable. In fact, the majority of the parable, first five verses, deal with this, and that is that we live in the reality of brokenness. And in the context of living in the reality of brokenness, we must recognize and appreciate that everywhere in this world there is the reality of the presence of evil. as Jesus presents this parable, he makes clear that the judge that he uses in this parable is a wicked man. Listen to how he describes the judge. He says he first of all does not fear God. In other words, the righteousness of God, the sovereignty of God, the law of God to to this judge has no effect, no concern. And then he says the judge has no respect for man. Now, anytime you have somebody in authority, you better hope they have a respect for God because their respect and their fear for God will cause them to humble themselves before the law of God. But if they do not respect God, they do not fear God, the only other hope is that they have some general respect for the dignity of man, that they'll treat people fairly. Uh, But Jesus says in the context of this parable that this judge neither feared God nor respected man and was not impartially applying the law. In fact, in verse 6, he calls him the unrighteous judge. Now, the the context of this would have been first easily understood by the original hearers. And that is that there was nobody else in the— there was no other demographic in the context of that day that was more vulnerable to being mistreated than a widow. In this context, she would have not had easy or equal access to the legal system. She would not have been empowered economically. She would not have had a voice that would have spoken for her in the echelons of leadership. And so uh, a widow would have been completely, very much dependent upon those who were in authority acting righteously and obediently and using their authority to protect those who were vulnerable and weak in society, the greatest of which was a widow And so when Jesus tells the story, his, his listeners would have immediately understood she would, a widow would have been an easy person to, to ignore, an easy person to treat unfairly and it made the, 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 the inability or the unwillingness of this judge to act on her behalf even more despicable. The brokenness of this world requires that we have laws and authorities that enforce those laws. When these authorities work under the fear of God and the respect of man, they are a blessing to the well-being and the flourishing of our, of our communities. But when these authorities do not fear God or respect man, they become instruments of evil and abuse. As a kid, I had a healthy respect for those who held positions of authority in government, I think that's right and good. I think we ought to teach our kids to have a healthy respect and honor for those who are in authority in government. But as I grew up and began to have a bit more perspective about those who served in those positions, it was a bit of a shock to me when I first learned that not every law enforcement officer was an upstanding, God-fearing, good husband, good father member of the society. M- many are, but not all. It was a shock to me I, in high school. I mean, I was in high school. I'd go with my father to, uh, to Washington on a lobbying trip, and in my mind uh, the legislators that, that filled the rooms of the Senate and the, and the House were dignified statesmen who walked around and spoke, spoke eloquently all the time, and I was shocked to discover that there were some bubba's and some good old boys and some guys who could not string three sentences together that made sense who were writing the laws of our of our land, That didn't mean that they were all that way, but they weren't necessarily rising to the imagination of, of, of grandeur in my mind. Friends, the reality is that evil is present in every area of our world. There is no position or demographic that is free from the presence of evil. This ought not to shock you. You hear me? It ought not to shock you, dear friends, that every now and then you discover that a pastor has given himself to sin. It ought not to even shock you that every now and then you discover that a pastor serving in a church was not obedient to the Lord. Because there's evil in this world. That means that every position, every authoritative position, every position that there is, is a is reality of brokenness there. Reminding us of the presence of evil is not intended to, ins- to, to discourage us. Rather, pointing to this reality is intended to prepare us. Don't be surprised by the presence of evil, and don't be shaken by the presence of evil. The presence of evil has not surprised God, nor does it alter or hinder his work or his will. That's the point. Sometimes we're we, we we are shocked. Oh, I can't believe that somebody who held that position did something that wickedly. But what Christians ought to say is, I recognize that evil is present. And I recognize that evil touches every area of our life. Praise God that he is sovereign over it all, even still. Amen. We live in a world that is broken. And there is the reality of the presence of evil. And therefore, we also live in a world where there is the presence of injustice. Now, if you were a kid at some point, which I think all of you were, or if you have a kid, at some point, you either uttered these words or you have heard these words uttered with the intensity, with the total intensity that could be mustered, and here they are. That's not, do you know what's coming next? Fair. Oh, if you're a parent, your children have come up to you from a decision that you have made. Maybe you gave siblings something other than, more than another sibling, or you did something, that, and they look at you with this broken eyes. That's not fair. Or maybe you in your job, or maybe you on a sports field, or maybe you to your own parents have declared with all kinds of intensity, that's not fair. Now, here's the thing. Parents, grandparents... When your children said that to you, the almost universal response, I believe, since Adam and Eve stepped out of the garden is this, or dear son, dear daughter, life's not fair. Now, the brutality of that teaching is we're expressing to our children, teaching our children That if you're expecting to go through life and always be treated fairly, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Life's not fair. Oftentimes, you get the short end of the stick. A lot of times, your half is the smaller half. Do that math. Sometimes, those who are in authority don't treat you fairly. That's the reality of the life in which we live. And with this simple exchange we're trying to communicate to our children that this world is often unjust and connected to the and related to the reality of evil is this reality that we live in a world of injustice life is not fair to the oppressed life is not fair to the politically disenfranchised life is not fair to the economically powerless there is injustice in the powerful mistreating the weak. There is misjustice in authorities abusing their authority or refusing to faithfully exercise their authority. The presence of evil and the reality of injustice poses two dangers to us. And that's where we're getting to the heart of this passage, is that when you are confronted with the reality of evil and the presence of injustice, there's two things, two temptations that can well up in your heart. The first is... You can lose heart, and the second is you can lose faith. Now, when I say lose heart, I mean give up, quit. Unfair treatment frustrates, and it discourages effort. If our attention is given only to the reality of evil and the unfairness of injustice, there will be a tremendous temptation to lose heart and to give up, to give up trying, to give up working, to give up laboring. You may be there right now. Maybe as you turn on the TV and you watch all the injustice and the, and the evil that's present in our world today, maybe you're tempted just to give up and quit. Lose heart. And the other one is to lose faith. Losing faith is related to losing heart, but it is much more serious. To lose faith is to no longer trust that God is able From the perspective of this world, it seems like the enemies of God are winning and have all the power. When evil seems to be unchecked and injustice is the norm, there is a danger of losing faith that no matter what, God is not able to bring about his will and his work. But dear friends, I think that's what Jesus is speaking to in this parable. Here is a widow who's demanding justice from a wicked judge. And Jesus tells the parable, he eventually gives her justice, not because he fears God, not because he respects people, not because he even cares about the widow, but only because she has absolutely worn him out. He's giving her justice out of a selfish desire, not out of a righteous desire. And Jesus says, how much more HOW MUCH MORE WILL our heavenly Father who loves you, who is justice, who is righteousness, how much more will he respond well to your cries and to your pleas? And so there are two things, I think, that counter the temptation to lose heart and to lose faith when we're confronted with the evil of this world and the injustice of the world. And here they are, and then we're going to walk through them. Number one, God knows everything. God knows all. He knows exactly what you're experiencing today, and I believe is responding to it today. And secondly, Jesus will return and make all things right, therefore we are to endure in this present age. Let's begin with God knows. So if you look in verse six and in verse seven, in response to the, to the, the parable about uh, the, the wicked judge and the widow, in verse six says, "And the Lord says, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says." So contrast what He says with what God does. Verse seven, "And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them friends two things here about god knows god knows every single injustice he knows it verse 7 says and god will not give and will not god give justice to his elect this is a simple acknowledgement that god knows the injustice suffered and hears the cries of his children as they suffer like the parables of chapter 11 where the neighbor repeatedly requests bread from their neighbor this parable i don't think is the 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 heart of it i don't think is about being persistent in prayer now you ought to be persistent in prayer in fact when we think about the persistence of prayer, that goes to the heart of the fact that you ought to pray only to the Lord and cry out to him only because you believe he is your only hope and salvation and help in times of trouble. But saying that, I don't think the, the punch, the power behind this parable is persistence. I think, uh, that, I think uh, that, that Jesus is placing all of the responsibility for deliverance I don't think Jesus is placing all the responsibility for deliverance on the on the uh, on the on the uh, persistence of the mistreated saints. In fact, I think it's just simply assumed that Christians will pre- persistently call out to the Lord for help. I think I think the power and and hopeful teaching of this parable is that God knows every injustice that you suffer. I think that the power and the punch of this parable is, listen, if you are being mistreated today, Jesus knows it and is providing for it and preparing for it. Wicked, selfish judges may deliver justice when motivated by selfish desire or even annoyance at the unrelenting request of those they have ignored. But dear friends, the Lord loves his children and the Lord loves justice. In fact, the Bible says that God desires justice. The prophet Amos declared, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus is making the contrast that our God, who is righteous, is not like wicked judges. He doesn't have to be annoyed into doing right. He doesn't have to be prompted into responding with righteousness. He's not blinded by selfish desires. Our righteous God knows every injustice. He sees our suffering. He, see- he knows our injustice. And I believe, therefore, he is actively working to make all things right. God knows what you're going through today. He knows every justice injustice. And he knows every suffering and every need. The last phrase of verse 7 says, Will he long delay? will, Will he delay long over them? Now, it's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer of no. The idea here is that God is actively, listen to this, he is actively responding now. He knows our suffering, he knows our needs, and he is actively, presently responding to our cries. Every generation of Christians has wondered if the evil and brokenness of, of our day could get any worse than what we're experiencing. So if you've wondered at some point as you've watched the television news or, or read some horrific event that's happening, if you've wondered, I don't think it can get any worse than today, you're joining a long list of historical Christians wondering, could our day be any worse, could get any worse wickedly? As a result of that, every generation of Christian has longed for Jesus to return immediately. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's a great encouragement in this passage, I believe, that says that he will not long delay and therefore is actively responding to our needs. When you're suffering, there's an added burden to your suffering When you are afraid that those who can help are unaware that you need help. When I was in seminary, um, I used to do a lot of telephone and alarm system installs, and that required that I had to get up in a lot of attics and under a lot of houses. Never liked crawling under houses. I was afraid of two things. I was afraid, first of all, that under those houses, something else might be down there with me. Amen. Amen. And number two, I was always afraid I was going to get stuck. Nobody knew where I was. Some of those early days prior to cell phones didn't always have one with me, and I thought, you know, how long will it take for anybody notices that I'm not coming home for supper? There's something powerfully encouraging when you're in the midst of suffering and someone who can help says to you, hang on, I'm coming. It doesn't mean that in that, in that particular moment You are being helped, but it means that the one who can help knows that you are in need and is actively working to meet your need. Dear Christian, God knows every injustice you experience. He knows every suffering and every need that you endure, and he will not allow you to suffer any moment longer than he has already declared. He will not allow you to be overwhelmed, and he is actively, listen to me, he is actively responding presently to the injustice of this world and to the needs and to our sufferings in this world. God knows. God knows what you're going through. And secondly, there is this this admonition, this encouragement to endure because Jesus will return and make all things right. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, we Our greatest encouragement presently is that Jesus is returning now listen to me carefully on this we believe in the resurrection as the hope unto our salvation and we believe in the second coming as to the hope of our present suffering meaning that what gives us the ability to endure presently is that we know we will not endure long for Jesus is going to return To all those who are experiencing the injustice and evil of this world, verse 8 is a powerful word of comfort. Look at what he says. In verse 8 he says, I tell you, he will. That's a definitive statement. He will give justice to them speedily. The point that Jesus is making is that from the perspective of eternity, his return Will be very quick. He's acting with deliberate haste. And this is to be, I think the, the idea behind this is this is intended to be for us an encouragement that when he returns, justice will come. That when he returns, all that evil broke, God will restore. That when he returns, all that injustice stole, God will return. Jesus is returning, and when he does, he is bringing justice with him. John's revelation d- described Jesus this way. He says, When I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is the idea there that he's bringing about the justice of his kingdom. This promise of an, is an encouragement to believe in faith and to endure. Hang on, hang on. Jesus is coming, and when he does, all things will be made right. And so the the encouragement this morning, dear friends, is this. Believe in faith and endure. Now, if you're reading through this parable, the last sentence may seem a little out of place to you. So Jesus has told the story about the wicked judge and the, the widow asking for help. He's, he's made the case that Jesus is... He's, going to make, he's, going to, he's coming back. He's returning. He knows our suffering. He knows the injustice. And when he comes back, he's going to bring about justice. But, but, but don't read too fast over this last sentence that he says. Look with me again in verse 8. So he says, this wonderful word of encouragement, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and this is a question, will he find faith Now, some believe that Jesus was speaking here to the Pharisees who were likely within earshot of his disciples. That's possible. Most are in agreement that what Jesus is recognizing is that when he does return, it will be in a period of faithlessness. Faithlessness. The commentator writes. He says Jesus does hint, however, that when He comes, it will be at a time of great, uh, will not be at a time of great fidelity. Elsewhere, we are told that He will appear at a time when the strength and faith of His people will be at a low ebb. Some historians have noted that our day is one of the most difficult periods in church history in terms of the vitality of the church itself, it is marked not so much by faithfulness as by faithlessness. Let's be honest with ourselves and say that there's no doubt today that our present day is a day that many are losing heart and losing faith. The statistics bear that testimony that many are not enduring in faithfulness in our own nation now we can take a global look at this but in our own nation about 40 50 years ago the mainline denominations abandoned biblical truth they gave themselves over to theological liberalism they denied the authority of scripture and rightly so their membership and their attendance was eviscerated And today, most of those denominations exist still, but they are a hollow shell of what they were just 50 years ago. And in the decades that followed, conservative, Bible believing, preaching, teaching churches took some comfort. That would be us. That even as we were watching the mainline denominations be evacuated, we took some comfort through the 70s and 80s and early 90s, that our numbers seemed to remain strong and even growing some. And then you get into the 90s and to the 2000s, 2010s, 2020s, and we watched as our nation in general's demographics turned not just away from believing faith but hostile to believing faith. This past year, the demographics for the SBC were not encouraging. Our membership dropped by a couple of percents. Our baptism numbers dropped by 4%. Dear friends, you can look around and tell there's something different here than it was in the 1980s. And I think this word, verse 8 in particular, is an encouragement to the church. And this is why I think it's a word of encouragement. It's a recognition. There's evil in the world. There's injustice in the world. And it's a recognition that there will come a day when many will fall away, give up, lose faith, lose heart. But the encouragement here is that Jesus is returning And we ought to believe in faith and endure the encouragement to the church is to hold tightly to the promise of his return, especially, especially in difficult days. One commentator wrote, he says, true Christians live in hope, waiting expectantly for the promise of Christ's return to be fulfilled. To that end, they pray for his glory and honor to be revealed. Such prayer is life-changing. Paul wrote to this same idea, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The encouragement here, dear Christian, is to believe in faith, trusting that God is able to bring about every promise of his word, believing that there has not been a moment, a second, a millisecond in history that God has forgotten or abandoned us, believing in faith and enduring in the present day of difficulty, knowing that at the perfect time, in the perfect moment, Jesus will return. One of my favorite stories is, and I've told it here many times, is the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton's expedition to the South Pole. It's an amazing story. If you're not familiar with the story, Shackleton led a team, and they were trying to reach the South Pole. They did not make it. So the fact that their their success of the trip was not what made their story amazing. His ship was called the Endurance, and it was stuck. It got stuck by ice there in the Antarctic sea on January the 18th, 1915. And eventually, the ice would press into that wood sailing ship and crush it. The men escaped off of that ship onto the the ice flow, and they eventually made their way to a little rock island that had nothing on it but penguins in the middle of Antarctica. Shackleton would leave the majority of his crew on that little bitty island with nothing more than rudimentary tents and very limited uh, food supplies. He and two other men would leave them there, in, and he would leave in a rowboat to row across the, the Antarctic Sea to hike across the mountain and to eventually reach the nearest whaling outpost that he could get to a place of civilization and, and, and hopefully get help now the end of the story is he makes it a few months later he's able to get a boat and he goes back and he rescues his men off that island the two things about that story that are amazing we generally focus on shackleton's journey in the rowboat hiking over the mountain in the cold and uh and getting to the to the outpost but there's another story that's not often made much of and that's the story of the men who were left on the island You know, it's hard for us to remember today because wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're always connected. You have a phone in your pocket, and you can reach out and call around the world at any moment you want to. But in 1915, that wasn't true. And for those men on that island, when they watched the rowboat with Shackleton in it leaving, they had no idea if he made it, if he could make it, and how long it would take him to return. Uh, On the island, they had to, to do a couple of things. They had to maintain a lookout during the day. Every day they got up and they sent someone out to look out for passing ships. They maintained the supplies to light a signal fire in case a ship were to pass by that island. They rationed food severely so that they could stay on the island as long as physically possible. They had some who were injured and sick and they had to tend to those men in those in those in those tents. They lived in the most rudimentary of uh, uh, provisions on, on the in the most harsh conditions. That you can imagine and day after day they did that work hoping that their captain had made it uh, to, to where he was going and it was not lost at sea hoping that there was going to be a rescue and all the rest and you have to ask the question every morning when they got up having no news of their captain his well-being or if anybody was ever coming you have to ask what kept them from losing heart can you imagine there would have been temptation on that island to go, listen, nobody's coming for us, boys. Let's eat all the biscuits. Let's drink all the coffee and have a really good time because we're dying on this island. What kept them from losing heart, what kept them from giving up, and what kept them from losing heart and what kept them from giving up was that they had faith in their captain, not only that he could make it and that he would make it, but that he would return and rescue them. Now listen to me carefully, friends. Our captain, our king, our Lord is infinitely more capable and faithful than Shackleton. Our captain, our king, and our Lord will keep his promises perfectly. He will fulfill his word and he will return and make all things right. So, what do we do as a church, enduring and suffering a world that is full of evil and injustice? Well, first, do not lose heart. Believe that God is able and is actively working to bring about his will. Don't lose heart, don't lose faith. Trust in the Lord, that even though it doesn't seem like even, that righteousness is winning, even though it doesn't seem like His Word is being advanced, know that His Word declares it, and believe that God is able to bring about every promise of His Word, and as we wait, pray, call out to the Lord, and endure, persevere, don't let loose of the promises of the gospel.